Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. For this special episode, we'll be doing something a little different and continue with the series on Philip II of Macedon in the next installment. However, an opportunity arose that was simply too good to pass up and that I thought you would enjoy greatly in having an esteemed guest on the podcast, Professor Barry Strauss. By now, we've covered a number of prolific warlords of history from different periods of time in different parts of the world. Part of the driving force for me in this endeavor, beyond utter fascination in terms of unpacking these historical events, has been on the larger-than-life characters themselves, a curiosity that has intensified ever since I started the podcast about what makes for effective military leadership, what the dominant characteristics and skills are that help determine who the winners and losers are within the context of historical events. Professor Strauss will help us explore these questions. Professor Barry Strauss is a professor of history and classics at Cornell University, the Corliss Page Dean Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and a leading expert of ancient military history, as well as a best-selling author whose books include The Battle of Salamis, The Trojan War, The Spartacus War, Masters of Command, The Death of Caesar, and Ten Caesars. In our conversation, we start with a broader discussion on the essential attributes and motivations of the greatest military leaders from antiquity. Before narrowing this exploration, spending time doing so through the lens of one of the greatest, Octavian, the future Augustus and first Roman Emperor. Examining his meteoric rise and monumental struggle against an almost equally formidable opposing duo, that of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, all of whom are featured in Professor Strauss's upcoming book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. Which, towards the end of the episode, you can find out how you can be entered into a draw to win one of two copies of his newest work. And now, I have the great pleasure of bringing you Professor Barry Strauss. Professor Strauss, thank you so much for being here on the show. I'm very excited for our conversation today. Thank you, Mark. I'm excited as well. It's great to be here. So you have quite the impressive body of work behind you as a historian in terms of ancient military history and events, being a renowned educator and author in this field. And one of the features of your work that has since deeply resonated with me is how deep you go into the exploration of the personalities, strengths, and weaknesses of the key central figures and the military leaders themselves. In particular, how you spend time delving into the attributes and characteristics that define really those that rise to the top. And this is something that I've always been fascinated with and that I also attempt to emulate in my episodes as well. Unpacking these motivations of these intriguing people and what contributed to their rise and fall. So I would love to know right off the bat, before we get into the meat of the discussion, what sparked this passion for you and drove you to dedicate your life to this area? 
Good question. So first of all, thank you for the very kind words. I do appreciate it. I was always interested in war. I mean, my, my father was a World War II veteran, even combat soldier in Italy. And my grandfather was a World War I combat veteran. And I grew up during the Vietnam era. Uh, luckily enough, uh, I was just young enough, so I didn't have to face the Vietnam draft. But I was always interested in war. And um, I had some really great teachers when I was in college. Um, got in, uh, interested in uh, ancient Greece and Rome. I didn't really expect to make a career out of it. I thought I was going to be a journalist, and I got a job as a newspaper reporter, and I was a little disillusioned. I realized it was not for me, and I, I wanted to uh, dive more deeply into things. So I went back to my undergraduate passion and uh, decided to get a go to graduate school and study ancient history further. And then once I actually visited Greece and Italy, I was a goner. I was totally hooked. You know, I knew that I wanted to spend as much time as I could in places like that for the rest of my life. So there you go. That's how I got into it. So by this point now, you've been researching, writing uh, probably voraciously. At this point, probably thousands of students taught, thousands of pages read and written. How has this passion changed for you? Or evolved over time as you've progressed in your career thus far? Good question. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel a lot and be in different institutions and have different experiences. So when I was a graduate student, I spent a, a year at the American School of Classical Studies in Athens, which was really an eye-opening experience. Um, since then, I've spent time at the American Academy in Rome. Uh, I've spent spent time in Germany, in France, in Israel, in Italy. So all the traveling has really uh, affected me a lot. Learned a lot about different cultures, different countries, different peoples. More recently, I was lucky enough to spend a year as a, a distinguished visiting professor at the Naval Postgraduate School in California and uh, to work with some special operations soldiers, which was incredible experience. It really blew my mind and exposed me to things about warfare today that I hadn't really thought about. And I think that's another factor. The nature of war keeps evolving and it has changed so much. You want to avoid uh, the fallacy of presentism when you look at the past, but inevitably the questions we ask about the present affect the way we look at the past. So we're asking very different questions about war today than we were 30 or 40 years ago. And I think that has affected the way I've looked at ancient history and the questions I ask questions I ask my students to look at. Initially, I was introduced to your work through your book, Masters of Command, Alexander, Hannibal, Caesar, and the Genius of Leadership. Now, this is a highly recommended read, in my opinion. And in it, you dive into the key attributes and characteristics of some of the more successful military leaders in antiquity. And you examine it through the attributes of really three behemoths of the ancient world, Alexander the Great, Hannibal, and Julius Caesar. So understanding that, I would love to get your opinion and thoughts on what are the prevailing or most important attributes of the more successful conquerors in history? Well, thank you, first of all. I'm delighted that you like that book. Um, it's one I'm very fond of myself. So um, the great commanders in history, the great conquerors in history, first of all, you have to have the ambition to be a, a conqueror. Um, it's not something that most people want. You 
have to have drive. You have to be utterly ruthless in, in getting ahead. You have to know the military art, but you also have to be a politician. You have to know how to, how to work with people, how to choose the right people to work with. You have to be a strategist. You have to see the big picture. Successful leaders, executives, any enterprise always depend on their number two. So you have to be able to choose the right number two and to assure yourself of the loyalty of number two. One of the big problems that Julius Caesar had, for instance, was that he was not very good at that. You know, he would choose a good number two and then he would inevitably offend them and drive them away because his ego was so huge and he had so little room for somebody else. Uh, his um, grandnephew and adopted heir Octavian, later Augustus, was much better at that. That's one of the reasons for, for his success. So uh, you have to be very good at people skills as well as at military skills. It's, it's very helpful to be a great battlefield commander like Caesar, like Alexander, like Hannibal. But it is possible to be a conqueror without being a great battlefield commander. Again, uh, Octavian is the great exception. He was not a great battlefield commander, but he was able to get the services of Agrippa, who was a great battlefield commander, and to keep Agrippa from turning on him, which was no small feat. That's part of it as well. I want to touch upon or dig a little bit deeper into one of the notions that you brought up, because when you mentioned the fact that there are great battlefield commanders and almost a, a smaller group that are effectively nation builders. There's a distinction to be made there. The reason I bring this up is because military victories in themselves, really, no matter how significant, didn't necessarily guarantee a more comprehensive conquest. And many military leaders throughout history would try different things to build something more longer lasting, whether through driving it through fear, terrorizing the populace, strategic marriages, eradication of the ruling dynasty, or sometimes even leading behind that of a figurehead or a puppet head of state. From your perspective, what strategies did the greatest of commanders use to ensure that these battle victories paved the way to something more longer lasting? Great question. You're absolutely right. So if we take the case of Octavian Augustus again, uh, even before he defeated Antony and Cleopatra at Actium, he had a brains trust that was working on the question of what's Rome going to look like after we win? How are we going to rebuild the shattered Roman Republic and turn it into a, a permanent uh, permanent arrangement? So you really have to think about those sort of things. As a contrast to Julius Caesar, who didn't think about that all that much? Ironically, I think it helped Octavian that he he didn't love war in the way that Caesar did. He was much more of a politician, much more of a politico. So that's one thing. You really have to think ahead. Uh, and secondly, I hate to say it, but it's very helpful to get rid of your enemies. I mean, Octavian on his way up was ruthless and bloodthirsty, and he he had a purge that killed a lot of his enemies in the Civil War. So by the time he got to supreme power, unquestioned power, he had a pretty open field. Plus, not too many people wanted to challenge him because they knew that he was ruthless and he would do away with him if that's what it took in order to be successful. Another thing about him that is so impressive is that he paid a great deal of attention to the succession. 
And although he was frustrated in his hopes to have a blood relative succeed him, to have his grandson succeed him, that didn't work. He was forced to adopt his stepson, the son from an earlier marriage of his wife. He didn't want to do it, but he did it. And he had everything in place so that when he died, there was a seamless transition to uh, to the man that, that replaced him. And he created a dynasty. So you really, it takes a lot of work and a lot of attention. You have to pay as much attention to that uh, as you do to uh, to the battlefield. And as you say, not that many people in history are able to do both. It's a very short list. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And I found that, so in Master's Command, you lay out, and you've already touched upon almost all of them, all those essential attributes for leadership. And I know that even in discussions on YouTube, and I know you do talks about how you incorporate those attributes into even a modern day setting and how leaders can use those types of attributes and learn from the actions and conduct of some of the ancient military leaders. Of that extensive list that you provided, there was one that I found quite different from all the others. And it was something that you coined as divine providence. So this one is very fascinating because it's, as I mentioned, very different from the other qualities, but it's more so something that happens to people versus an innate skill or attribute that these people possess. Can you take us through a bit of a deeper dive of exactly what divine providence is? Well, I mean, you know, there, there are really two ways to look at it. One is if you're a believer, which I am, if you believe there is a higher power, then you think there are, there are things in human affairs that we can't really explain, but that somehow work for people. If you don't believe in a higher power, then you can just say the breaks, people get the breaks. But if you look at um, some of the great leaders in history, if you look at Alexander, for instance, he has the, the threat of having his campaign against the Persian Empire defeated, strangled in the cradle, as it were, by a man named Memnon of Rhodes, a mercenary general, a Greek mercenary general working for the Persians. And conveniently for Alexander, Memnon just dies one day of natural causes. It's so convenient that a novelist has suggested he was poisoned by one of Alexander's agents, but there's zero evidence from that in antiquity. Or you look at Octavian, who was not a healthy guy. Um, he was sick and on his deathbed on more times than once. He's almost killed in an early battle, the Battle of Philippi. And yet somehow he managed to survive to his 70s. Uh, and he is by one measure the longest reigning of all the Roman emperors. And you have to ask why, you know, I would say that there's sometimes there's a higher power that people serve. But if you don't like that, you would just say that sometimes people just have very good fortune. And um, I, I think it's it's really inexplicable otherwise. Or the case of Napoleon, when you consider what he started from, you know, this guy from Corsica and Corsica only became French, you know, what, within a year of Napoleon's birth. Uh, and he ends up ruling Europe. I mean, wow. Um, where does that come from? I completely understand uh, what you're referring to. And, and that's why I find that notion so fascinating. Right now, I'm in the midst of a uh, series on Philip II of Macedon. And when you mentioned Napoleon started with, I mean, it, it is very deeply related to what Philip started with. He He started, he inherited a kingdom that was racked with internal disunity and being assailed from all sides from 
not only his neighbors in the Balkans, but also from that of Greece and particularly Athens as well. He was one who was uh, quite the recipient of a great deal of divine providence. But I think what makes that one so fascinating for me is, I mean, you could refer to it or term it as luck, but I think it goes much further than that because it's what someone does with that, what the what someone does with these key instances of fortune, how they incorporate it into their long-term strategy. That's what makes it so powerful of a notion. I really agree. It's being the right person at the right time and the combination. And you could say it's just chance, you know, the odds uh, work out that you get the right person at the right time. Or you could say that um, there's a guiding spirit behind it all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Who knows, right? I completely agree. Now, I'd like to, to change gears a little bit because right from the outset in the development of this podcast, I've been eternally curious about the motivations of these people and what was driving them to fight and grasp for more power and more acclaim. And of the ancient and medieval military leaders that I have covered in the podcast thus far, there are a number of reoccurring themes that I'd love to get your perspective on. And I think that these are linked to the attributes that you mentioned. And to a certain degree, even the catalyst for people developing these essential attributes for leadership. The first one, it relates to their upbringing from their youth, how they're shaped by the people around them and their environment and the events surrounding them during the time of their youth. How significant of a factor do you think this is? Oh, I think it's always immensely significant. I mean, we certainly learn from modern psychology how important it is. But even if you go back to antiquity and someone like Plutarch, you know, he emphasizes the early lives of, of the people that he, that he writes about. We know that Alexander, of course, was raised to be, raised to be a king. Uh, he was the son of Philip, uh, of a great conqueror, and of Olympias's mother, who clearly thought that her, her boy was a, a god or was divine, divinely inspired. He's very talented and he had the best education possible. His tutor was no less a figure than Aristotle. So, you know, he was raised to be a, a to be a warrior, but also to think in a very broad in very broad terms, in very big terms, uh, from early on. And you know, his parents had a stormy relationship. Uh, they didn't get along, uh, but he had that mother there to always tell him that uh he was something really special. He, you could imagine someone like that being smothered by having so great a father like uh, as Philip, but it didn't happen in the case of Alexander, you know, not at all. You're right. And you touched upon something that I think is extremely fascinating in the sense that both from his mother's side, meaning Alexander, both from his mother's side and his father's side, we're talking about two lineages that from Philip's family or the Argaid dynasty lineage extended through to Heracles. And then on Olympias's side, they descended from Achilles as well. So I mean, when you have when you have powerful notions like that resounding in your head, you're probably going to feel that you're destined for greatness and that you should be pursuing that path. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. I would just add that I think the mother plays a very important role in the lives of future great leaders. Yeah, and I know we'll be talking about that uh, very shortly as well with 
with your new book in that of Cleopatra's impact and how she was amazingly protective of her children as well and to carve out the kingdom for their safekeeping into the future. So one of the other elements that I've continually been seeing as well, and this one is a lot harder to nail down because it involves the mindset of these people and for lack of a better term, their mental health predisposition. One of the things that I've seen is, for example, feedback from people that I've seen with respect to my show is when considering the actions of a lot of these ancient military leaders, sometimes people are quick to dismiss their actions of that of a psychopath or a sociopath. And I know we can't outright dismiss these notions because we weren't there and and we can only learn based on or glean a sense of that based on their actions and how they conducted themselves. But again, I think you touched upon this earlier on in our discussion that these weren't necessarily normal people, right? I mean, those that drive to the top, there could be instances of narcissism or megalomania. How often do you think that this plays a role for these figures? Always. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Aristotle said, men do not become tyrants to come in from the cold. I mean, I think all anyone who rises to the level of a conqueror has got to have a degree of megalomania because it's not an easy life. Um, You have to be constantly driving, constantly pushing ahead, always looking around the corner, always looking through and behind people. You have to really, really want to do it. You have to really believe in yourself. It's not the ordinary person who can do this or would even want to do it. I've often thought about that as well, because this relates to many of the things that we we're just discussing, their, their upbringing and their youth and, and how that blends into that whole um, notion of mindset. Because if you're led to believe that you are one thing, you're going to be potentially driving towards that, like a force of nature, right? Right. Yeah. One of the other reoccurring themes that I've really noticed as well is the ability of successful leaders to thrive in times of chaos. Typically, these are eras or periods of huge upheaval. And so there's this uncanny ability for these people, these the most successful to always remain cool under pressure and not be impacted and dissuaded from their strategic vision, regardless of the chaos that is going on around them. Yet they somehow always have this ability to thrive within this chaos. What's your perspective on that? No, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I have this image of Alexander the Great on the eve of the Battle of Issus. This is in uh, southern Turkey on the coast near the border with Syria. He discovers that his intelligence was incorrect and the Persian army has come between him and his base. His supply lines are cut off and he's going to have to turn his men around and march back uh, to fight the Persians. But he's utterly calm about the whole thing. And I think it's partly that this guy is, is, is raised on horseback, as it were. He's used to being a cavalryman. He's used to living under the stars and constantly moving. And he's able to take this chaos, this potential terror, and turn it around and say, men, we have the enemy where we want him. And it's true in a way, because now the Persians are going to have to fight the Macedonians in a narrow pass. 
rather than on the plain on the other side of the mountains where they might the Persians might have been able to deploy their numbers to greater effect. Uh, the fact that Alexander can be so calm and collected and cool under these circumstances, uh, it really speaks to his to his training and his ability. Uh, a different example might be the Spartans at Thermopylae. They would never have been able to make that last stand. They never would have been able to hold off the Persians without their training and their discipline. So I, I would say that's that's something that's very important. It's not it, it is a matter of psychology, but it's also a matter of training. Uh, when you get to these moments and you say, yep, no surprise. We knew this was coming. Bring it on. I think that makes such a big difference. I love how you put that. I completely agree. So now I'd love if we could change gears a little bit and jump into something new and exciting because you do indeed have a new book coming out. The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. Right off the bat, I must say, I devoured the book from cover to cover and enjoyed it immensely. And in doing so, I also learned a great deal in the process. And one of the things that I think that you do well and exceptionally well at that is laying out and describing the sequence of events in the lead up towards Actium and beyond, while also bringing each historical figure to life, touching upon their strengths and their weaknesses of each of the main figures, while doing this against such an amazing backdrop, such a defining point in Roman history with the Republic in its death throes and the beginnings of the empire in the wake of Caesar's assassination. So I know I've already started doing so, but I would love if you could provide us with a high level overview of the book, setting up the events that it covers, while also touching upon the key players and the factions that were fighting for supremacy. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much. I'm really flattered that you to know that you enjoyed the book so much. So I'm I'm happy to go through uh, through the events. So um, the book, as you say, goes from Caesar's assassination to Octavian's triumph to his success over Antony and Cleopatra, and I wanted to kind of radiate out from the Battle of Actium on September 2nd, 31 BC, and explain that this was part of a war. It was part of a broader civil war between Octavian and Antony, or a struggle for power between these two men. It was also part of a a, a tug, a push that went on for centuries between the Greek-speaking eastern half of the Mediterranean and the Latin-speaking western half. Uh, And the Roman Empire was always looked both ways, both towards the West and towards the East, and always was a mixture of Latin and Greek. And finally, that the battle was part of a campaign, that uh, there's an Actium War. It's not just this one battle. And the battle is a fantastic example of how people win wars by setting things up, uh, by having strategic advantage when they get into a battle. So that, to me, was the most exciting part, to try to explain how Octavian and Agrippa set things up to win the battle and why Antony and Cleopatra, in spite of all their advantages, why they didn't win this war. So that was the, the puzzle that I wanted to, uh, to solve when I, when I looked at this. Wonderful. And one of the things that struck me were the central figures that were fighting for control of Rome, each desiring to be Caesar's heir and 
eventually what would become the Roman Empire. Really, when you look at the surface of this, Octavian and Antony couldn't be more different people. On the one hand, you had Octavian, who was younger, scrawny, somewhat sickly, as you touched upon earlier, and certainly not a natural soldier, but undeniably intelligent and politically astute. On the other hand, you had Antony, who was much older, a seasoned veteran, a big brawny guy, celebrated soldier, but also somewhat of a hard drinking party goer. And on the surface, so different, but it was one of the items. And as you explore in your book, it's how each was much more balanced out by who they had in their immediate orbit. Can you touch upon a little bit of that? Sure. Well, um, Octavian, as you say, he wasn't a natural soldier, uh, but he was a natural strategist and politician. And uh, as a young man, he was um, he caught the attention of his great uncle, Julius Caesar. His mother and his grandmother made sure that Caesar paid attention to Octavian. Caesar saw how bright young Octavian was. Uh, he gave him positions of authority as for appropriate for a, a teenager. And he actually had Octavian join him when he was on his campaign in Spain in 45. So Octavian spent six months or so traveling around with his great uncle and learning the ropes as it were. And it was after that that Caesar changed his will and made Octavian his heir. He saw in him something that he didn't see in his the other members of his family. He had other young relatives who he could have given the nod to, but he saw that Octavian had what it took. He had the X factor. He had something special. And that was his intelligence and his strategic intelligence, his ability to see through people, to understand people, and to see the big picture and to be looking ahead. And also that he had the ambition that was necessary to carry on the dynasty. Now, Caesar could theoretically have chosen Antony, less likely, because Antony, Antony was a much more distant relative of Julius Caesar than he was related to, to Caesar. Uh, Antony was an older man. He was an experienced soldier. He had commanded uh, a unit for Caesar at, uh, at the key battle of Pharsalus, and he'd fought for Caesar in Gaul, and Caesar knew all that. But he also knew that Antony just lacked Octavian's political skills. Not that Antony was a complete klutz of politics. That's not true. He was, he had a lot of skills and he was very successful on a number of occasions. But there's something that Octavian had, a combination of ruthlessness and vision and strategy that Antony lacked. And Caesar saw it. He saw it in Octavian. So that's really the difference between the two of them. Antony was better in battle, but and much better than than Octavian, but he didn't have this strategic skill. When you look at the two factions on Antony's side, he was linked with Cleopatra, of course, but I think the best mirror image for Cleopatra is actually that of Octavian. They seem to be very related in terms of how they saw the world and, and how politically astute they were behemoths in that sense, I feel. Yes. And it's a good point. In many ways, Octavian's counterpart is less Antony than Cleopatra. She is also a great strategist. And she's also somebody who is um, punching above her weight, considering that, yes, she's the daughter of Ptolemy. She's the daughter of the king, but she has an older sister. She has brothers. 
it's by no means assured that she will become the heir to the throne of Egypt, but she gets it through her astuteness, her skill, and her strategic use of her body. Um, she becomes Julius Caesar's mistress, and that is a, a great turning point for her. And she has a son who's almost certainly Caesar's son. He never acknowledges the boy, but he allows Cleopatra to give the kid his name, Caesar, and known by one and all as Caesarian, little Caesar. And he allows Cleopatra to come to Rome, perhaps with the child, we're not sure, and has a statue of Cleopatra put up in front of the temple of Venus, the ancestor. And Venus is not just the ancestor of the Romans, but she's the personal ancestor of Julius Caesar. It's even possible that the statue shows her holding the baby in her arms. So this is very successful for her. And she plays a part in the death, the convenient death of her sister and her two brothers, leaving the throne on her own. So she's every bit as ruthless as, as Octavian and strategic. Definitely. This brings us to another interesting point as well, because with that linkage between Antony and Cleopatra, so obviously Caesar was no longer around, and I find their relationship utterly fascinating, because initially it was more so of a political alliance, and it appears that Cleopatra was trying to leverage Antony in the same way that she leveraged Caesar previously to retain her throne and remain in Egypt and keep it as an independent state. But then things changed and their relationship evolved into something deeper, certainly a romance, perhaps one of the most famous love stories of all time. I would love to get your perspective on who do you think the real engineer of this relationship was? Well, I mean, that's a great question. We don't really know. It's tempting to think that Cleopatra was the one who was calling the shots just because she was such a great strategist. And after a certain point, she had enormous leverage because after his defeat against Parthia in the invasion of Media Atropatine, Antony no longer can fund his own army. He's dependent on Cleopatra as a financier. So she is able to call a certain amount of the shots. She's also a famously charming person and would use all her charms on Antony. But I think we'd make a mistake if we thought of Antony as just kind of this dumb, strong guy who's pushed around by the woman. Antony, one of the most impressive things that Antony does is that he creates the series of alliances and client kingdoms in the East that control the Roman frontier for over the next century. In fact, after Octavian defeats him, Octavian simply takes over all these kingdoms and says, in fact, thanks, Antony, for setting these things up. I don't, you did a great job. I don't really need to change anything. The only thing he does, of course, is he takes over Egypt, but otherwise he leaves things as Antony had set them up. Uh, the other great thing that Antony does is that Antony is the person who engineers a truce in Rome after the death of Julius Caesar. He arranges things to have the assassins evicted from Rome, but also to have an amnesty. So he plays a very important political role in the very tense days after the death of Caesar. So, so Antony is not without political and diplomatic skills, but probably not at the same level as Cleopatra and certainly not at the same level as Octavian. 
Great. So now moving beyond the figures themselves, really, there's so many fascinating moments in the broader struggle that you cover in the book that truly, I think any history enthusiast would readily eat up, uh, which unfortunately, we don't have enough time to go through here in, in its totality. But I'd love to get some of your insights on some of the more fundamental points along the storyline. The first one being what happened in October 42 BC after the battles at Philippi. So this is when Octavian, but mostly Antony, is credited with winning the encounters and dashing the last hopes for the Republic. So this is when, in the aftermath, Rome is carved up between the three men that would ultimately form the Second Triumvirate. You had Lepidus, who got North Africa, Octavian in Western Rome, including Italy, and Antony in Eastern Rome kind of including Egypt because it was independent, but somewhat of a client state. So when this second triumvirate was formed and then later extended, would you say that Octavian was saddled with the most difficult task of organizing Italy, the West, paying and settling the soldiers while also dealing with the renegade Sextus Pompey? When the second triumvirate is formed and when the Roman world is divided after the battles of uh, Philippi, Octavian has the more difficult task. He is in Italy. He has got to, he's got to settle the veterans, which means dispossessing people who are already there on land in Italy. And he's got to deal with the problem of Sextus Pompey, who the son of Pompey the Great, who has carved out a naval kingdom for himself with Sicily as his base. And he's able to close off the grain supply to Italy. So Octavian has to deal with all of this, whereas Antony has the more pleasant job of being in the East, which is very wealthy, and there he's got to set up a series of client kingdoms, and it's his ambition to lead a campaign against the Parthians. This was the campaign that Crassus had been defeated on, that Caesar had planned to launch when he was assassinated, and now it's it's Antony's ambition as well. But that's easier to at least envision. It's not easy to defeat the Parthians, not at all, as Antony discovers, but probably looks easier than dealing with these thorny political and military naval problems in, in Italy. And Octavian has no naval experience, and somehow uh, he's got to defeat uh, Sextus Pompey's navy. Not an easy job at all. One of the other things that I was thinking about as I read through the book as well in relation to what we just discussed was that there was a benefit, obviously, in being control of the West as well. I mean, this allowed Octavian to be in control of Rome and all the messaging and propaganda that was reverberating in Italy. And of course, being in control of the source of Roman military manpower. So did this help assert his legitimacy and eventual path to victory? I would say less than people usually say. So the source of Roman military manpower, yes, that was very, very helpful for Octavian. And certainly Octavian made masterful use of propaganda and fake news. But I don't think in the end it was all that important. Remember that Antony was not without resources and supporters in Rome of his own. And on the eve of the war, 300 senators leave Italy, they evacuate Italy, and they go off to join Antony in the east. They are not impressed by Octavian. On top of that, Octavian has to do something unprecedented in Roman history. 
He has to make the rest of the senators join him when he crosses the Adriatic and goes eastward to attack Antony. Normally, you leave the senators in Rome. So why doesn't he do that? It's because he doesn't trust them. Uh, because there's huge discontent in Italy with Octavian, partly because he has to raise taxes like crazy to pay for the war. Antony doesn't have to do that because he has Cleopatra's treasury. Also because a lot of the Roman nobility doesn't like Octavian because Octavian's not a member of the Roman nobility. He may call himself Julius Caesar, but his father was Gaius Octavius, who from the point of view of the Roman nobility was a nobody. He's a used car salesman. They're not interested in this guy. They don't want him. Whereas Antony is one of them. The Antonii, they may be a bit louche, they may be a bit suspect, but they are part of the club. So I don't think that the advantage of being in Italy is as great as we retrospectively think it was. Another interesting or fascinating point along this road of this storyline is what happens in the autumn of 34 BC. And this is following Antony's somewhat disastrous campaign in Parthia, although he did manage to eke out some pretty significant wins with the conquest of Armenia. This is the point at which triumph-like celebrations are held in Alexandria. And then Cleopatra and Antony conduct the donations of Alexandria. So this is when they parcel off parts of the Eastern Roman lands to not only Caesarian, who is the son of Caesar and Cleopatra, but also the other three children that were sired by Antony and Cleopatra. So Professor Strauss, in your opinion, was this the point of no return, ensuring that everything cascaded into open conflict between Octavian and Antony? Well, it was certainly a challenge. I don't think that naming their children as the eventual heirs or uh, spouses of princes of the East, I don't think that was such a big deal. And the Romans had, had earlier taken some provinces and given parts of provinces and given them to Eastern kings. So I don't think that was the deal breaker. But I think that recognizing Caesarian as Caesar's son, that was definitely a threat to Octavian, because Octavian, who was not Caesar's son, he claimed to be Julius Caesar. We call him Octavian, but he called himself Gaius Julius Caesar. So for him to have Caesarian recognized as a legitimate heir of Julius Caesar, that is a threat. And uh, by the same token, I, you know, Antony had very good political intelligence in Rome. I think Antony could see that Octavian was gearing up to fight him. From Antony's point of view, here is Mark Antony, a, a servant of the Roman Republic who wants to make war against the Parthians and who's now successfully conquered Armenia and gotten the king of Media, Atropatine, a, a Parthian a client, to now join in an alliance with Antony and Rome. Antony's gearing up for a renewed war in the East. And here is Octavian rather treacherously threatening it to make war on Antony. From Antony's point of view, it's Octavian who is the aggressor. There's a really interesting lead into a question that just popped to mind as well, is that understanding this, and it was clear that things were heading in that direction, that, that there was going to be warfare. Why do you think that Antony and Cleopatra weren't more active in terms of preparing for war against Octavian and perhaps moving against him in a more aggressive manner? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they certainly weren't passive. They build this enormous fleet and it, it's got state-of-the-art ships that are have reinforced prows. So they're better at ramming than the enemy fleet. And it's got a, a small but significant contingent of what we might call super ships or ultra-large ships that can be used in attacking fortified ports. And that would have allowed them to invade Italy. I think they do everything right in moving to Western Greece. The one thing they do wrong, in my opinion, is they don't invade Italy. That is the big question mark. This is perfect because you anticipated my next question. Why didn't they were situated there? What was it, late 32 or early 31? Yeah, late 32, early 31. Yeah. So, I mean, I think short answer is we don't know. The long answer is there are a couple of possibilities. One is they lose their nerve. They realize that invading Italy is going to be difficult, you know, no less difficult than D-Day was for the Allies in 1944. And there'd certainly be some in their army like Churchill who really were not enthusiastic about invading France. Secondly, there's Cleopatra and Cleopatra is a double factor. For one thing, it's very difficult to, from the propaganda point of view, it makes it much more difficult for Antony to invade Italy with a foreign queen in tow. I don't think it's impossible, but it makes it harder. Secondly, Cleopatra herself might have been very reluctant to invade Italy because it brings her further away from her base in Egypt and leaves her potentially vulnerable to the enemy going to Egypt while she and Antony are going to Italy. Furthermore, if it's a naval battle fought in Greece, she's more important to Antony's army than if it turns out to be a land battle fought in, in Italy because she's not providing the soldiers, she's providing the sailors and the navy. There are some who would say that Antony's great mistake is not sending Cleopatra home from Ephesus when the fleet gathered in the spring of 32. That's what his most important naval ally, uh, Hannibarbus, wanted him to do, and he considered it, but in the end, he he declined. And some would say that's the big problem because you can't really invade Italy while she's there, and she is an, a point of discord among some of Antony's allies, and that's possible as well. You know, here we get to the point of speculation, but I think it's one great turning point. The other great turning point is that they do just about everything wrong that they can do while they are waiting defensively for for the enemy to strike and in some ways it is analogous to hitler and the german defensive position in 1944 where they make a lot of mistakes but i'd say that antony and cleopatra made even more mistakes than the germans did in 1944. this is a perfect lead into the next question because antony's hesitation allowed Octavian to strike first through his celebrated Admiral Marcus Agrippa. And the means through which he did so was a daring raid on the city of Methone. And this happened, I think, in March 31. This is a really fascinating one because it's not well covered by historical accounts by any means. And of course, tends to be overshadowed by the later Battle of Actium. But in this book, you make quite the compelling and convincing argument to the importance of Methone prior to Actium. Part of this has to do with 
the fact that Antony's and Cleopatra's supply lines extended from Greece all the way through to Egypt. And this was through a series of ports, no less. Very, very difficult to maintain. And I feel bad for whoever Antony put in charge of this logistical nightmare. It must have been brutal. <laughs> but I'd love to know from your perspective, Professor Strauss, was Agrippa's takeover of Methoni, was that the nail in the coffin for Antony and Cleopatra's ambitions? Or do you think that Actium was still the deciding encounter? Great question. I don't think it was the nail in the coffin, but it certainly made it much, much more difficult for Antony and Cleopatra. I think they still could have won, but to do so, they would have had to do everything right. The problem is not just that Agrippa wins at Methoni, though that's very important, but then he continues to win other naval victories. They're not prepared to deal with those. And then when Octavian brings the rest of the fleet, the bulk of the fleet in the army to face Antony at Actium, unlike at Philippi, where the enemy conveniently did what Antony would have wanted the enemy to do, this time the enemy doesn't do anything that Antony wants him to do. And they set things up just quite brilliantly to make life miserable for Antony and Cleopatra. It could hardly have been worse. Now, this is a good segue into our next area, too, because I'd love if we could talk a little bit about the Battle of Actium. It was really satisfying how thoroughly you cover the details of exactly what happened and doing so in a holistic manner, painting a vibrant picture of the encounter from beginning to end. And again, sadly, we don't have enough time to fully do it justice in our talk here, but maybe we can take an initial stab at it. Based on that, can you please take us through a brief account of what happened at Actium and perhaps touching upon some of the key factors that led to Octavian and Agrippa winning this engagement? Let's just say that what Octavian and Agrippa had done was they had starved out the enemy navy. Let's put it this way and take a step back. It would have been, uh, there was only a long shot chance for them to win a naval victory at Actium. Uh, in all likelihood, the best they could do was affect a breakout battle and save part of their fleet. They no longer had the manpower to do what they had wanted to do. So that's how bad the situation was for them. And they do manage to save a third of their fleet, which is not terrible for a breakout battle. Not terrible at all for a breakout battle. It's not great, but it's something. Within the context of that naval battle, there was a significant surprise for me in that when you compare the opposing naval forces. So through that attrition and through all those difficulties that Antony was experiencing, yes, he had him and Cleopatra had a, a smaller fleet than what Octavian and Agrippa had, but you mentioned that they they had a great deal of these ultra-large ships, the, these much larger vessels than what Octavian and Agrippa possessed. So a lot of the documentaries that and accounts of the battle that I have since come across, they tend to argue that this somewhat leveled the playing field. But you point to these larger warships being an impediment in battle. I think a lot of people would find this surprising. Can you give us a sense of why that is? Well, first of all, Antony and Cleopatra don't have a lot of these larger ships. They have a small number of these larger ships, maybe 10 or 15% of their fleet. The problem with larger ships is you need to have more men rowing them. 
and you need to have strong and healthy crews. Also, it would be very helpful if the enemy would make its fleet vulnerable to you by coming close in. But Octavian and Agrippa don't do that. They know very well what the enemy has, so they stay far away. And Antony's ships are going to have to do a long row in order to ram the enemy's ship, and the enemy doesn't give them an opportunity to do that. So it's not going to work out for them. When we get to this ending point, I can't help but go back to the beginning to a certain degree and revisit the initial playing ground because you've mentioned this already, but the Eastern Roman provinces, they were far richer with more food, resources, wealth than the West. And this appeared to give Antony and Cleopatra a definitive edge. How did Octavian overcome this disadvantage? Shrewdness. (laughs) I mean, the side with the more wealth and and bigger weapons doesn't necessarily win. If that was the case, the U.S. would have won in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. But it didn't, of course, because the enemy gets a vote and it's a matter of character, astuteness, strategy. Octavian and Agrippa play their cards extremely well and Antony and Cleopatra don't. It really it really comes down to that. You know, you only get one bite of the apple and all the weaponry in the world and wealth in the world isn't going to matter unless you use them correctly. Octavian and Agrippa diagnose the problem with the enemy very, very well. And Antony and Cleopatra just aren't up to it either intellectually or operationally. That really is, you know, I think the, the story in in a nutshell, even though they've got very impressive resources, as you say. This relates very strongly to a notion that we brought up early on in the discussion and that of the greatest of leaders that are even able to overcome such tangible deficits, but cut through it through effective strategies. Nothing is impossible for those that have that insight and that ability to define a strategy that allows them to overcome such a significant difference in terms of resources as well. And one of the last questions that I'd love us to touch on as well, and this is a bit of a a blue sky meandering, if you will, but uh, one of the things that we like to do, um, I know that I certainly like to do, is explore what ifs to a certain degree, because we know how everything ended up, of course, but I can't help but continue to question what Antony and Cleopatra were lacking. What were they lacking that would have allowed them, you think, to emerge victorious instead? (laughs) I think they were lacking an effective strategy, really, or the ability to, to carry it out. I think that was their main problem. I think they underestimated the enemy. They underestimated the advantage that Octavian and Agrippa had from fighting. They had fought a naval battle, a naval war against Sextus Pompey, and then they fought another one, a lesser one, against the Illyrians. So they were very skilled at naval warfare and a combination of amphibious operations. They carried these out. So they really knew what you had to do. Also, they were very audacious. Antony and Cleopatra are playing it safe, not entirely, of course, but they're you know, they go to Western Greece. Okay, that's gutsy. But they sit there and they're waiting for the enemy. The defense doesn't necessarily lose, but it's got to be a very shrewd, very active defense. And they're not 
They don't have an active defense. They have a passive defense. And that's just not going to cut it against Octavian and Agrippa. I mean, it's it's sort of like a championship game in sports where you have two very good teams. And you can't say that one is not good. It's just that the other is really better and is at a different, a higher level. And that's just, I think, the case here. I think that Antony and Cleopatra were quite good, but they just weren't at the at the superstar level of Octavian and Agrippa. I mean, people like that, they don't come along every day. And they just were capable of things that the other side wasn't. Excellent. That is a great answer. Yeah, sometimes if you're dealing with someone who is a mammoth and truly one of those few, Octavian and Agrippa as well, can't dismiss that, their capabilities were rather unparalleled at that point in time, probably throughout antiquity. Very few were of that level, definitely. Yeah, well, very few people in history have matched the uh, the record of Augustus. So as Octavian becomes. That is that, <laughs> <laughs> that is well said. And, and this is a great point for us to close off the, the interview. But before we do so, I'd love if you could provide some details on when and where my listeners can find out more about your newest upcoming book. Sure. Well, first of all, I have a website, barrystrauss.com, and I invite everybody to uh, click on there and you can learn all about the book and uh, where it fits in my my other works. You can also pre-order the book on the website, barrystrauss.com. The publication date is March 22nd. And then it will be available on all the usual online outlets, Amazon, et cetera, and Barnes and Noble, et cetera, and so forth. And I trust in all major bookstores. So it'll be available as there as well. And I hope in your local bookstore, wherever your listeners are. That is wonderful. So Professor Strauss, I just want to thank you so very, very much for being a guest on the podcast and for sharing your insights into military leadership and of course, sharing the details on your newest upcoming book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. Thank you, Mark. It was great being here. Thanks so much for having me as a guest. I hope you found the discussion with Professor Strauss as fascinating as I did. As mentioned at the top end of the episode, I have access to two copies of his book as a giveaway, although unfortunately I'll have to limit it to people residing in the US and Canada. I apologize to my listeners outside of those countries, and I'll try to figure out a way to make it up to you in the future. However, if you do live in the US or Canada, and want to be entered into the draw for one of the two free copies, please head on over to Twitter and tweet out a note, tagging both myself, at Warlords History, and Professor Strauss, at Barry Strauss, by March 15th, 2022. We'll continue with the series finale of Philip II of Macedon in the next episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode.